Welcome back to another episode of the Adam Schefter podcast presented by DraftKings, America's top-rated sportsbook app. And training camps across the league are now underway, though not in the way that we're used to seeing them. The common refrain, the common comment from coaches and front office members across the league is that this training camp is unlike any other training camp they've ever been through. It's not training camp. It's more like a science experiment where temperatures are taken every day, where blood tests are taken on a regular basis, where COVID tests are administered, and we wait to see how people avoid each other and wear masks and socially distance and try to stay safe as the virus brings down a sport in baseball in a way that football is trying to avoid. Now, before football goes any further, and it's put into place a number of protocols and systems to try to make the sport as safe as possible to continue on the way basketball has in the bubble down in Orlando. But the fact of the matter is football is going to face inherent dangers that baseball already has that basketball won't because basketball is not traveling. And that's why I believe it's not too late for the NFL to make a radical change that I believe would contribute to help saving the season and enhancing the chances that it would go on. And that would be, and this is going to sound radical, abandoning the schedule that's now in place for the 2020 season, tolling it to next year. So making the 2020 schedule that Howard Katz, the NFL schedule maker, already has put together and putting it aside till next year, making it work for next year and implementing right now a new schedule that would basically kill most of the travel. It would kill the East Coast and West Coast games and schedule more division games and matchups of teams in close proximity to one another so that the teams could either take a bus to that game or fly in the morning of and not have to stay in a hotel the night before. So the AFC East and NFC West matchups that are supposed to happen this year, they'd be out the window. Get rid of them. We'd have the Patriots and Bills play all the time. We'd have the Eagles and Steelers play all the time, the Jaguars and Buccaneers, and so on and so forth. It would reduce travel. It would decrease the chances of virus spread. And in a year that you are looking to do the right thing and to keep the sport alive, this would go a long way towards doing that. Now, it's hard to imagine that the league could abandon the schedule put together all during the offseason in the first week in August and implement a new schedule at this point in time. But in the interest of helping save the season and enhancing the chances that it goes on, it's not too late to do that at a time where coaches across the league are sending the same message to their players, and that is, this is on you. This is about being disciplined. This is about not going out at night. And no, the NFL is not in a bubble, but it's in its own virtual bubble where the players are in the facility, will be in the facility. They'll be tested on a regular basis. They'll be in a controlled environment until they leave. And that's where you don't know what happens if they decide to go out, if they decide to go do some sort of activity, if they're around their own kids who have not been quarantining. That's where there is some risk that is inherent in the way we live our lives. But if the NFL could adjust the schedule, and I don't believe it's too late to do that, as radical as it seems, it might help the chances of the season, and it would basically reinforce the message that head coaches across the league are delivering to players that turnovers aren't the most important thing in the 2020 season. Controlling the ball, limiting mistakes aren't the most important factor in the 2020 season. The most important factor in the 2020 season is a player's behavior and acting responsibly and courteously and, can, and professionally to your fellow teammate and man so that you limit the chances that everybody gets sick. For weeks on this very podcast, we tried to forecast the economic gloom that was coming and how it would impact the NFL salary cap in future years. And that has come to be where the salary cap floor for next season will be $175 million, but it will be lower than what was projected. And now we're trying to get out in front again, and we're trying to be proactive and make it such that football can come off this year. We are asking the NFL to take a hard look at the schedule and to do the logical thing, to realign it now before it's too late. All right, before we get to today's episode, I want to remind everyone 
with the much anticipated start of the 2020 football season just around the corner. Make sure you're staying up to date on all your fantasy football news with ESPN fantasy experts, Matthew Berry, Field Yates, Stefania Bell, Mike Clay, and Daniel Dopp on the Fantasy Focus Football Podcast. You'll get daily strategy previews and injury reports to ensure you have all the information you'll need for your fantasy football team. Be sure to download and subscribe to Fantasy Focus Football and the Adam Schefter Podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors. I do, you do, we all do, big, small. And when we keep them bottled up, as I sometimes have had happen in the past, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. It's helpful for learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. It empowers you to be the best version of yourself. It isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Adam today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash Adam. And now the legendary sports talk host, the man who signed off on 22 years of an incredible run at ESPN Radio, Mike Golick. All right, joining us now, the man that made a grand departure from ESPN Radio on Friday, the man who became a radio legend over 22 years, who paved the way for athletes to leave the playing field and to be a commentator on all sports, a man who I guess has interviewed me and asked me a lot of questions over time, but I've never had the chance to flip the script around. So I'm very excited to have Mike Golick here today and to be able to ask him questions for a change. How are you doing there, Mike? I'm doing great, Adam. I'm, I'm happy to be on the, the other end of this, you know, <laughs> 22 years at ESPN, three more out in Phoenix. So it's been 25 years of getting up every day and getting ready to ask people questions about sports. What was that send off on Friday like for you? That last bit was so emotional with your family and the words from junior. It was awesome to watch. What was it like for you to watch up close be the subject of all this and experience it. Well, you know, once I, <clears throat> I knew that was going to be the last show, the one thing I definitely wanted was uh, my, my family to be there the last hour of the show on set with me. Uh, as far, and I thought I was going to make it all the way through. I said <laughs> there were two guests and two friends that I've had over the years that I wanted on for the last show, and that was Darius Rucker and, and Bill Curry. And we talked to them, and, and it was all great. And so I thought, okay, I'm on. Now my family's been on for an hour. I'm on the last couple of minutes. I'm going to make it through this thing and, and without, without breaking down emotionally. And then, you know, my son started with what he said about me. And I was like, oh, my God, I did not know he was going to do that. And, I mean, how could a, how could a father not, not break down when they hear one of their kids talking about him like that? I think that's been the interesting part watching for all of us is I know my mom's been a wreck throughout all of us seeing the nice notes that everyone has sent and all that. And it's appreciated, but we joked and said it felt like a funeral and all of this. And I realized like for us, it's a little different and it's a little happier because even after we turn off the mics, you still get to be our dad. <laughs> and I think that's the, that's the part that through all of it, oof, I am my mom's son. That's the part that threw all of it. And when we grew up, you know, it was, it was such a big thing. And Mike and Mike became this big phenomenon. And there was so much that came along with that. And it, you always made sure that it was about us. And you always made sure that you were around for the stuff that we did. And we felt that and we saw it. And it meant so, so much to grow up feeling like that you could do anything. Because you two made that possible. Because we got to watch the way that you guys woke up every day and loved each other and loved us and supported all of our dreams through that. It's the reason Jake is a, is a great husband right now. It's a reason Sydney's going to be a great wife and they're going to be great parents. And you're going to be a great husband too. <laughs> <laughs> and come hell or high water with my mom, that is going to be the case too. 
But you always put that at the forefront. You stopped calling college football games when we got to high school because you wanted to be around and support us. And then to get to do this with you for the last three years is it'll be the highlight of my professional life, my personal life. I love you so much to get to do the thing I always wanted to do with the person I always wanted to be is such an insanely surreal thing. I I will never forget it. So about all I had after that was uh, a thank you to everybody. And I I couldn't really, really talk anymore after that. What was going through your mind as he was saying the great words that he did that any father would be privileged enough to hear those words from his child's mouth? I mean, the the one thing I, I, I get, it gets weird on me when I'm the focus of something. So that was another thing about this whole thing. It was, you know, I do a show that we talk about other sports and bring on others like yourself and you guys are the focus. So this whole show, I was the focus. And then Mike was really, you know, talking about, you know, more, more than a working relationship, obviously a, a family to, to parent relationship. So I was just a, like I said, I, I was caught off guard, but I mean, boy, to hear those words, you know, I, you never want to sit there and gloat and say, you know, I think I'm a good parent. And, and again, the, the, the book's always written every day on something like that. But to hear those words and, and, you know, after the show have, you know, your other kids tell you the exact same thing. I mean, it, it's, it was really a, a moving moment to where, you know, a little later on in the day when, uh, when my wife and I had kind of a private moment, we just kind of smiled at one another and said, well, at least it seems like this far we, we, we've done pretty well. You know, hopefully we can continue that way. Oh, I would say, so you can have those words come out the way they did with the emotion that he had and not realize and know that you were an exceptional father and you've heard the testimonies from other people. Everybody's talked about you make being a radio legend, but also being an even better dad. What would you say, before we get into the way you spent the rest of the day, what would you say is the key to being a great parent, Mike? Well, to being a great parent, I, I, you know, I was fortunate. I mean, I, I think being involved, and sometimes that that would mean, I know you can't physically be in, involved and, and with them all the time doing their things, but just always be there and available any way you can. I was very fortunate in the fact that the morning show. You know, when I first got to ESPN, my kids were nine, eight, and four, and. I was fortunate that those hours of the day, like my wife said, the only thing you're missing is kids getting on a school bus going to school. You know, I finished at 10. I was able to be the lunch dad at school. Then I was able to do, you know, NFL Live. We did uh, in the afternoon the the, um, the football TV show. But then I could coach them during the week in their sports and their little league sports, whatever it was. And then on the weekends, I could go do college football. So I was always very fortunate to be around. I stopped doing college games when they start when they got to high school so I could be involved. And ESPN, you know, said, that's cool. You can do that. Obviously, I did the radio all week. So yeah. I was fortunate to be around. And I know other parents can't be around, but that doesn't mean you can't be involved in somehow, some way. It doesn't always have to be, like I said, right next to the person. I think that's the biggest to me. And it's what my parents taught me. Hell, my dad worked too. He worked a regular job and a side job. My mom worked, but it was amazing. They they were always involved in everything we did, even if it was just for a few minutes or a whole game or a practice. My dad coaches, my mom coaches. So they found a way to be physically involved right there in person or in another way involved. And to me, that's always resonated and uh, with my wife, Chris, the same way is, is our job. We thought as parents is to love our kids as best we can and be behind them and supportive of them and whatever they want to do. So how did you spend the rest of the day after the show goes off the air at 10 a.m. Eastern? Does the Gold family celebrate together? Do they eat that beautiful looking cake the rest of the day? What, what do you do to celebrate the end of an era. The the end the rest of that day, my body either had cake in it or alcohol in it, and that was pretty <laughs> much how the day went. To where by the time I think eight or nine o'clock at night hit, we were all like, "God, we feel awful what we've done to our bodies today." So yeah, everybody hung around. We we sat around, you know, on the deck and by the pool and had some cocktails, and we went out to eat. Uh, with some friends and did the same and then it just it just kind of continued as kind of a leisurely day of, of 
when we were hungry, snacking on cake, and we were thirsty, grabbing a beer or a drink. And that's that's kind of how the day went. So I, I am paying a little bit of, a, of that price today now. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe there wasn't as much time to reflect yesterday as there might be going forward. But when we look back on 22 years in radio and we think about visits to David Letterman and visits with United States presidents and first pitches being thrown out, what of those experiences stand out to you, Mike? What really leaves a mark with you? Well, I mean, I guess it would be just like wow moments to me that where I had a personal connection. I mean, I, my wife's from Chicago, so she's always been a Cubs fan. I went to Notre Dame, which is an hour and a half from Chicago. So we'd always go up to Chicago and hang out there. So I've, I've gotten to know Chicago very, very well. So in all honesty, throwing out the first pitch a couple of times there, getting able to sing in the seventh inning, I mean, it was just, I mean, you see that happen all the time that all of a sudden you're up there with the microphone in your hand doing it. Uh, I, I was a, a David Letterman freak when I used to be able to stay up that late before I started doing, uh, you know, radio that early. I watched him all the time. And now all of a sudden I'm walking out on stage to talk to him. Not once, not twice, but 11 times. 11 times. Wow. 11 times. 11 times we were on there. And then, listen, when, when you can go to the White House, and, and I know, my God, God forbid anybody does anything, talk, you know, do anything that has to do with politics on a sports show, people yeah. lose their minds. But this had nothing to do with politics. This was a, a Little League baseball game that they, T-ball that they do on the lawn that Greeny and I got to go be part of. And along with that came a picture with the president and the first lady, Laura Bush, and then dinner at the White House. I mean, I got to go to the White House. I got to go to the friggin' White House. So, yeah. I mean, how do you how do you not just like are just in awe of of that? So that was that was amazing. But the other two things were kind of like I said, a personal touch to me because I had loved watching David Letterman for so long, and then I got to beat him or meet him, I should say, and then I got uh, you know grew up loving Chicago because we went there from Notre Dame all the time. My wife was there and all of a sudden I'm on the mound, even though I did bounce in my first pitch against the Cubs and I got booed <laughs> and I should have gotten booed. I mean, that's, you can't bounce it in. I was told airmail and all you want, do not bounce it. Of course I bounced it. Hmm. Uh, but, but those things really resonated because it was kind of a personal touch there for me. And which presidents did you get to meet at the white house? Uh, well, the only, only one was, was President Bush uh, at, at the White House. Others that we had on were, were uh, President Obama. And I, I've met Bill Clinton more than a few times after he was president at some events. Like I would, we would, there'd be multiple speakers where he would speak and I would speak, not, not right next to each other, but multiple speakers. So I've met him uh, a couple of times as well. And it's just, you know, it's just, again, I, I, I never want to talk politics. I never do yeah. on the show. It's just at some point, man, you get to meet a person who, who ran the country. I mean, it's just, it's just a cool thing because rarely do you get that, the ability to do something like that. So that was, it was very cool to be put in this position. The, the show has given me a lot of, a lot of great memories and, and being put in positions that not a lot of people get to. And that's something I'm really appreciative of. So how, how does somebody go from St. Joseph High School in Cleveland to becoming a 10th round draft pick in the NFL to being a speaker with presidents and appearing on Letterman 11 times. How does that happen, Mike? Uh, boy, I tell you, Adam, I wish I knew. I wish I had a formula for it that I could just pass out. But, you know, I was one of those when I was playing football. I, and I try and tell all ball players I talk with today, don't do what I did as far as not thinking of what you're going to do when you're done. The best time you can make connections is while you're playing that sport, because once you're done, the doors kind of close. Well, it was kind of inadvertent for me when I was in Philadelphia, Randall Cunningham had a TV show as most quarterbacks do, you know, in the, the cities they play and they, they have a show. And I did a piece on it called Golix got it. And it was kind of a humorous look at our, at our, our next week opponent. Uh, and I did that for a couple of years right place, right time. It won a local Emmy um, while I was playing. And, and since it was in Philly, not too far, obviously from, from here, here in Connecticut, ESPN, well, I guess, obviously found out about it because they called me and they said, listen, you know, on your bye weeks or in the off season, you want to do some stuff with us. So I said, sure. So this was when ESPN two was just starting. And remember the old sports night with Keith Olbermann, yeah. Susie Colbert, 
um, Stuart Scott, Mitch album. I would do. Oh yeah, I would do. I would do um, segments with those guys, like in the off season. And so that that was my first, you know, look into ESPN. It was actually while I was still playing and just ending playing. So inadvertently, I had a relationship with ESPN. So when I finished playing, they called. They said, "Do you want to do college games?" Which I did. I did college and ABC, uh, ESPN and ABC games. And while I was doing that, and it was NFL Tonight, not NFL Live. It was me and Mark Malone, Sean Salisbury, Merrill Hodge doing NFL Tonight. I was doing that. I went out to Arizona to do local radio while doing the national college games and that, that TV show. And, and one day when I flew to ESPN to do NFL tonight, the bosses set me down. They said, listen, we, we want to start a, a national morning radio show. We've never done that. We want to do it. We want to pair you with Tony Bruno, who I had known from my days with the Eagles. Tony was big in yeah. Philadelphia. Yeah. So we moved, you know, my wife said, listen, it's an opportunity we have to take. So we moved from Scottsdale back to, you know, here to Bristol, Connecticut. And that was in 1998. And you know what? It just, it just kind of rolled from there. A lot of it is right time, right place. Yeah. And after me and Tony was me and Greeny and we just, we just kind of hit it at the right time where it became pretty lucrative for ESPN making money uh, on what we were doing on radio and TV. And, and in turn that helped Greeny and I as well. And, and just kind of raise the profile. It, it really, we never thought it was going to yeah. do what it did, but I, I think a lot of it is right place, right time. And when did you know that it had caught on, that you had gone big, that the show had made it, that you were going to go on to do some of these things? There had to be a moment when you realized, wow, this is taking on a life of its own. Yeah. Um, Greeny and I started in, in 2000. And we weren't on many affiliates because when Tony Bruno and I started in 98, we were only on one. We were only in Chicago. Our morning show was only carried in Chicago. And eventually the affiliate list grew there. So when Greeny and I started, we were in more affiliates, still not a ton of affiliates. We weren't even heard in Connecticut where ESPN is. So I really think what helped us is our bosses couldn't even hear us. They couldn't even hear our show. So actually for a couple of years, we kind of just flew by the seat of our pants and kind of learned, you know, made our mistakes, learned from our mistakes and tried to correct them. And then all of a sudden the ratings started going up a little big. ESPN took notice and gave us a little more pub. And then they put us on TV. They put us on ESPN news. And when we went on ESPN news, we we're like, huh, okay. You know, this is kind of cool. They, they must think we're doing pretty well. And then, and, and, and but we were still in ESPN radio, which is those like remote cameras there on news. And then all of a sudden they said, okay, you guys are going on ESPN too. And we're sending you down to the TV studios. So we went in the new digital part. We went where the TV studios were not radio anymore. And now we had the TV cameras while we still did our radio show. They shot the TV around it. And we were like, okay, it must be going well. If they're putting us down here, you know, by, them making money on the radio side, them making money on the TV side. So I think when we made that move to down to the actual TV studios and we were on ESPN radio and ESPN two, I think we were, we, I was like, we're okay. We, we kind of made it here. We, at least for the time being, we're in a pretty good position and we were fortunate enough to have it last a while. But is it fair to say that were it not for Golix got it with Randall Cunningham? that you might not have gone on to have the type of ESPN career that you did? It's, it's fair to say that it may not have happened that quickly because I, I did get the relationship with ESPN. So right when I finished playing, I got to start working for them. Like you saw a lot of players at that time, when they finished playing ball, they would become analysts. So because I had the relationship with ESPN, they brought me right in to be an analyst for national games. I, I So I never really had to, go the local route except for those couple of years in Arizona for radio, but I was still doing national football, uh, uh, you know, studio shows and college games. So I still had my name kind of out there. So I, I do think winning that local Emmy on Randall's show for right. Golic Scott, it definitely sped up the process without question. Now you mentioned doing radio that early. Have you deleted the early time on your alarm clock yet? Oh, that's gone. Absolutely. And, and I was very, pr I was, I was very proud of myself because again, this start has really been at 22 at ESPN and three out in Arizona where it was morning radio out there. So 
basically my alarm has gone off at 4.50 or 4.30 for 25 years. And I've only had to set one alarm, and I've never overslept and missed, and missed the start of a show. So I was always pretty proud of that. But that's the first thing I did, Shefty, is I, I got rid of the alarm clock. I will not need it anymore. And like I said, I'm still staying in the business. I, I'm yep. what I'll do after my contract runs out of the ESPN. Like I'm going to do college games for the rest of the year. If there is college games while I'm under contract with ESPN, I actually went to them. I said, listen, I know I can just sit around and collect my check cause you know, I'm under contract, but I'd rather be doing something. And I love college football. So let me go back and call those games uh, now we just have to wait and see if there are games. And then when my contract runs out at the end of the year, we'll see what happens. You know, we'll see if I go back and do radio, if I keep doing TV and where that may be. Um, I don't know if it'll be a morning show again, quite honestly. <laughs> we'll, we'll have to just wait and see what, what opportunities present themselves. But at least I can say uh, for another few months, I will not have to worry about getting up too early. Well, getting up at that time. When it gets to the weekend, are you able to sleep or is your body so conditioned that you just get up at 4.30 or some early hour because you're so used to doing it? So what happens is, and I am trying to, I'm wondering when this won't happen anymore since I won't set an alarm. What, what happens on the weekends, still around 4.15 or 4.30, I kind of wake up a little bit and stir because my body's used to getting up at that time. And then I just try and go back to sleep. And I can usually sleep into like 7, 7.30 on the weekends. But I always wake up at like 4.15, 4.30. So I'm wondering how long that will take when I can actually just sleep through that and sleep all the way until the morning. That's, that's going to be a nice little experiment I go through. <laughs> well, you get 22 years of damage to work off, right? It'll yes, probably, exactly. It, it'll take a little bit of time to do that. Now, when your ESPN contract is up, you're 57 years old. You turn 58 in December. What would you like the next chapter of your career to be if, I, if you could draw it out? Man, I tell you, that, that, that question was just asked to me basically by my agent what's been very nice and I didn't I didn't know what what would be ahead for like a 57 year old guy who's been in the business a long time but we have heard we've had a number of phone calls from a number of outlets mm -hmm. about what I wanted to do next and, and next and these people all know I'm under contract until the end of the year so they all just were kind of trying to you know, get feelers out on what I might think about doing. And they said they'll all, you know, contact again at some point when my contract, you know, when my contract is going to be up to see what I want to do. And so that's kind of what my agent asked me was, well, you have to figure out you're in a, I am, and I'm in a very nice position because of, of how the years went of, of if, if I have choices, I can pick and choose. And, and Shefty, that's a great question because I, I don't know. I mean, do I want to go back and do day-to-day -day radio again? I mean, there's all different things out there. There's Twitch out there that, you know, is, is unbelievably popular. There's radio. There's going back and just calling games again, whether it's NFL games or college games. Um, I, I, I think it seems like I'll have some options to decide that, and that's something I'm going to need to decide. So maybe these next few months while I'm just calling college games will kind of let me take a breath a little bit and kind of say, okay, I'm going to be 58 years old at the turn of the year, the new year. You know, what am I, what do I want to do? You know, I still have a passion to work. I still love talking about sports. It's just going to be a matter of, of how I want to direct that. And that's, that's something I, I don't know yet. Well, that's the whole thing. You've gotten to earn the privilege of doing whatever it is that you want to do. You don't have to do anything. You right. don't have to get up at 4.30 in the morning anymore if that's what you don't want. Your kids are grown. Everybody's doing great. Family's unbelievable. Like, you've had unbelievable success. It's, it's got to be a great position for you to be able to pick and choose. Will you stay in Connecticut or will you go back to Arizona? Or what's the situation with uh, that? I mean, the, the, uh, again, a lot of that will base around where the kids are. It, it's interesting because I have a place in Scottsdale and we have a place at Notre Dame as well which was great because the kids go there and stuff. It's a, it's a wonderful kind of gathering spot. But a lot will depend on where the kids live. Right now, my son Jake and his wife Jenny are in Boston. They own those two Orange Theory Fitness Studios. They're, they live there. Right now, my daughter Sydney, who just got engaged to, uh, to Ben Broniker, he was a tight end in the NFL for four years. He's going to get ready to go to med school. Right now, he's in Boston taking, taking classes and working in labs right now 
but I don't know where he'll be in, in med school. And then Mike, as you know, works is in Connecticut here, which is close to Boston working at ESPN. So all of a sudden, if we have all our kids are, you know, more on the East, I'm certainly, while I'll certainly go to my place in Scottsdale at times, I'm not going to live there full time when all my kids are on the East coast. So we'll have the ability to kind of jump back and forth on that one. And I'll decide uh, be where all the kids end up. But you still have your place in Arizona. Oh, believe me, that ain't going anywhere. The, the, sure. the place in Connecticut will will downsize Connecticut uh, yeah. before the, the Scottsdale place get, get let let go. That we're gonna have that a long, long time. Gee, let me think about this: December, January, Scottsdale, Bristol, Bristol, Scott. Ah, yeah. yeah, Scottsdale. Exactly. I think it'll be Scottsdale. <laughs> exactly <laughs> I mean, right. <laughs> that, that that's the way to do that. So, was there anyone that reached out to you that shocked you or? meant a lot to you that this particular person reached out as your 22-year radio run, legendary run was coming to a close? Wow, that is a great question. The thing about it is I've gotten to know so many people over the 22 years that it, it mostly has been people that I've had either some kind of, some kind of relationship with. So I wouldn't say it was anybody out of the blue where I went, Oh my God, you know, that person reached out to me. Um, but, but more that, that they all, that I got to meet so many people over the years and that they did reach out to me. That was very humbling. You know, it's interesting. Also, your wife was a big supporter on social media. She made sure that it was a great send off. And even on Saturday morning, she responded to a tweet that I'm going to read to you that I don't know if you saw, but it is from one Tonegale Travis. And she wrote, to you and your wife, when my dad passed, I would call his voicemail and listen, I called your show once and called Adam Schefter a feisty little nugget. Your laugh was priceless. I'll have to listen. I'll miss you. Can't wait to see or hear what's next. Remember that caller that called me a feisty little nugget that you guys got a little bit of mileage out of playing that over and over on the air? I think you guys need to leave Adam Schefter alone to like late August or September. He was a spicy little nugget this morning, wasn't he? Jeez. A little bit of mileage. And do I remember <laughs> it? Oh, my God. We couldn't wait to bite, to, to, to cut that bite up. He was a feisty little nugget. Just the way she said it, too, was so good. We used that sound bite so many times. It was awesome. I still hear it in my ear. I could still hear her voice. And the way she said Well, her, her, delivery, her delivery was fantastic. It wasn't just, oh, he's a feisty nugget. He's a feisty little nugget. It was so good. <laughs> As we put a bow on this, Mike, and I want to thank you for the time and thank you for everything that you've done for ESPN. You look back on 22 years. How will you remember all of this? I, I think the way I'll remember it, and a lot of it came from the fact that, of what I've heard from people on social media over the last few weeks, which has been so humbling to me. But there's a couple of things that, that I'll, I'll, I'll remember is because, listen, I wasn't a hot take guy. I wasn't a yeller. I, I'll never, no one's ever going to say, oh, God, I remember Gola because he used to, to go off about this or off about that. That's not what I wanted to do. I wanted to be the guy at the end of the bar where we all were sitting around having a beer and we were talking sports. And when I would, and I think the things I remember the most is when I would meet people on the road or in the airport or something, they would say, you know what? It's so weird. I feel like I know you and your family. I feel like we're friends because of, of how you let us into your family. Mm. That to me says a whole lot. And then whenever I would, uh, uh, women would come up and say, you know, I love your show. And I love the fact that when I'm driving my kids to school, I don't have to worry about changing the channel because it's going to get too blue or something like that. So, you know, I, I, that those things to me were important was to open up, you know, give of myself to everybody, bring it, let everybody into to my life and my family's life and just kind of sit around like friends. So, like I said, it'll never go down as, as one of the most hot take shows or the most opinionated shows, but you know what, damn it. I enjoyed myself. I loved bringing people in and it, it's seen people enjoyed it as well, and, and I have no regrets about it. Well, Mike, I want to congratulate you. I want to thank you. I really appreciate you doing this today. It's sad to see you go, but I'm glad that you'll be with ESPN at least through the end of the year. And I, I also am excited to see what's next for you, and you deserve whatever it is that you want to do, get to do, and I'm sure it's going to be fantastic. Thanks, Adam. I appreciate it very much, man. And there is Mike Golick. And before we get to the Rams Vice President of Sports Medicine and Performance, Reggie Scott... And Reggie, 
Thank you for doing this. You know, before we even begin, I got to tell you, the people there love you. And uh, uh, let me just say this, that getting a trainer on the first week of testing, that's like getting a quarterback in the middle of playoff week. I mean, this is unbelievable. <laughs> so thank you for your time in advance. Hey, you know, you know, it's so funny. You're dead on, man. I got we're moving and shaking, so uh, you, you nailed it. So, so Reggie, how crazy is this time for you? Uh, real crazy. I actually got in today around uh, around five thirty this morning. We got physical come physicals got guy guys coming with physicals today. We have you know testing going, We're averaging about 190 guys a day of testing in terms of tier one, tier two, and players. So you know you got this huge testing regimen going on. You're trying to you know create this normalcy, and obviously you got all the the mitigation and, and um, uh, you know, risk mitigation policies that we're trying to provide for these guys to keep a good, safe ecosystem. So, you know, opening up our front entry points and making sure that guys are, you know, because we're onboarding them too, Shepner. So, you know, we're trying to really educate as they onboard because they're starting to come into the building. And, and so it's, it's a whirlwind, my man. Well, let me say this. As we tape this on Friday morning, we see basketball is now underway, Reggie. And baseball, you probably haven't even seen, has had more setbacks, more positive tests. The Arizona Cardinals, a bunch of them tested positive this morning. Where are we wow. with football going forward? And what do you think, what are you expecting this upcoming season? Well, you know, uh, it, it's hard to tell right now. Obviously, you know, this thing's a dynamic uh, a, a virus, and we're learning about it every day. And, you know, right now our job is to onboard all of our guys and, you know, really see how the process goes and see if we can be sustainable. Um, I am optimistic right now. Um, you know, we're onboarding well. Um, you know, you haven't seen any huge blow-ups yet. It seems like with an NFL from what I see. And so, um, you know, right now, today, I'm optimistic. Now, every day, you know, Adam, it's, 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 you never know because um, it is it is an ever-changing virus. Uh, but I do love that. I, I feel like we got our best chance. Yeah, I really do think we got a good policy and procedures in place to give this thing our best shot to be successful. You know, what's interesting to me is that a lot of people that I heard who are negative are more positive and upbeat now. I've spoken to people around the league in their training facilities, and the common comments are that they feel safer there than ever before. They feel like there's so much testing, so many procedures to go through, that they believe the league has put into place the best possible system it could have to allow a season to happen if it will does that make sense absolutely and I, and I couldn't agree more i really do think we've created a very safe ecosystem um as people on board you know i've been having educational components for players staff and i even did one last night for all the family members of players staff and coaches and it's funny i get a lot of feedback after the education a lot of the first thing they say is I would actually put safer at your facility than at home, you know, and that, that's good feedback. And they see all the things that we're doing are truly trying to mitigate risk. Obviously, we know we can't eliminate this virus, but our goal is to try to mitigate as much as possible in terms of um, spread and make sure we have good, rapid treatment in place to take care of these guys and staff and coaches and all of us if any of us do get it. Uh, but you're exactly right. I think the facility, we're going to have a really nice system in place, and our job is to try to make sure that we do our due diligence outside of the facility so we don't bring that virus in. Reggie, it's hard enough to be a trainer in the NFL with all the injuries that go on. Can you even put into words right now how much harder this virus makes your job this upcoming season and who knows how much longer going forward? Uh, that's, that's the million-dollar question there. And, I, you know, talking to a lot of my colleagues, this, you know, a lot of us are taking on this ICO role, which is an infectious control officer, and you're exactly right. It's it's a very big role. Um, it, is a, it is an enormous job, um, you know, and I credit to, to a lot of the athletic trainers in, you know, in the NFL and taking on this role, and they're doing an excellent job. And it, it's just a credit, I think, to this profession and, and people being able to take, continue to take more and more work. And, and also, I think it's a credit, too, to the empowerment of the NFL and really allowing the athletic trainers to take this role, work with team physicians. Um, we've, we've been on a lot of different committees for um, procedures and policies, and I think it's just another credit to show where our profession is really going and, 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 where, and the importance of who we are in the world of sports. Um, and it's, it's just, it's been an awesome experience. It's been a lot of work, but it's been an awesome experience. How does somebody like yourself immerse himself in this virus and learn about it? How do you do that? Like, I would imagine you didn't know a lot about COVID-19 before 
March 1st or so. Exactly right. Um, you know, it, obviously you got to do your due diligence and do your lot of reading and, and make sure that you're getting a lot of, um, you know, good evidence-based articles the best you can in terms of the type of testing, um, learning about different things, various antibodies and, you know, all the mitigations and procedures. You got to do your homework. You know, I was really fort fortunate, Adam, to, um, you know, be on a lot of committees with the league this year in terms of for all the procedures and policies we made where they did have athletic training representatives there along with team physicians and NFL PA reps and um, obviously NFL affiliates. And, and so I was really fortunate to, you know, learn a lot. And we had a lot of really, you know, smart people and experts in the, um, the world of infectious disease and really helped us, um, you know, guide this. And that's why you feel really good about where we're at today and with the league because of uh, just the awesome job that Dr. Seals and Dr. Tom Merritt done to, you know, put a good plan, plan together. What did you learn during the off season about the virus that opened your eyes, Reggie? You're, you're the father of two young girls, right? Sophia and Isabella? Yep. yep. So what, yep. what did you learn about this virus yep. now as it affects you, your family, and the people that you're trying to take care of in that building, the Rams organization? You, you know, if I had to pick the biggest thing I've learned, believe it or not, and, this, and Adam, this would be, might shock you a little bit, it's not so much the medical component of it, um, you know, I think the asymptomatic component to this is, is what probably most people fearful about is people could be walking around and not know they have it. But, you know, the biggest thing I've learned is the mental health component to it and the what I call how it affects every single person differently. And what I mean by that is, is that, number one, I've really learned that when people do get this virus and they have this virus, you know, the guilt, um, you know, how they feel like they, they've caused this and how they're feel like sometimes they feel, you know, they isolate themselves. I think people have no idea what this has caused from a mental health component to our country and to our world. And we really have to be mindful of that. And not only just the people that get it, but even just in the world where state, in the state that we're in right now with so many people with isolation, of being in their homes for so many months. And then the last piece with that too, with the mental health component is the experiences for every single person. Adam, your experience with this versus my experience can be totally different. You have some people that think it's a, you know, a hoax for God's sake, and you got some people that feel if they get it, they might die, and in every spectrum in the middle, and that's been a really eye-opening experience for me with this virus, and I'm learning that we really have to respect everybody's walk, um, everybody's experience with it, and really treat everybody individually based on how this virus affects them. You know, it's so interesting that you say that. Last night, my wife and I were listening to the head of her school, my daughter's school. And he was laying out the plans for the upcoming school year. And my wife is like, we can't send her back like that. And I was like, I think it's important for her to go back. And she got upset with me for not being more up in arms about the whole thing and, the, and some of the procedures that she felt were not being taken. And it went back and forth. And by the way, there's mental stress there because now we've got our daughter here who's been home since March. And we're not in, we're not unique. Everybody's going through this. Everybody's going through this, right? Like you've got your two daughters at home. They're going to be homeschooled, right? So it falls on your wife Tina to take care of them, correct? Like that. That's not a simple process. It's not. And think about that. Everything you're talking about has nothing to do with the medical component. The medical component to the virus. It's more the strategic understanding of how how it affects you, how how your wife feels about it, and how you feel about it, how it affects your children. It's a, it's amazing what this has done to a lot of us from a from that mental health component, just like you said. And it's so funny, Adam. I thought you were in my house last night. I mean, I'm going through the same exact thing with my wife Tina. We we literally, you know, what should we do? You know, um, should they should they go to school? Should they not? And um, it, it it puts a toll on all of us. And uh, that's probably been the biggest thing that I've really truly learned. And we got to respect that. So where are you on the school issue? See, my wife's type one diabetic, so she is yeah. very careful about everything, as she should be. You should you? Be. Yeah, we're, we're, we're leaning virtual right now. We really are. We're, we're leaning, we're leaning virtual and staying home. Um, you know, my wonderful wife obviously loves, she, she loves, the, um, you know, to actually work with the kids and do things. So I got one of those wives that actually enjoys it. I know, I know you got a lot of people out there that, you know, sometimes, you know, they have double income homes where they both got to work and it's almost schools need it. And so that's what you really feel, you know, tough for them, but we're really fortunate that she can stay home with them. And so, um, we're, 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 we're homeschooling through, uh, through the fall, at least as far as I know. I trust you. And, and do you worry about being in a building around so many people, even as safe as it is felt and going back home with your family? Or do you feel like it's so safe that it's not 
something that you even think about when you go back home? Yeah, I, what makes me safe is it's not so much, you know, who am I around and all that stuff. What makes me safe is make sure that I'm doing my part. I keep telling myself, I just wash my hands, practice physical distance, and wear my mask. You know, Reggie, all in all, you should be fine. I mean, that that's, I really do believe that. Um, regardless of the situation and parameters that you put me in, if I do my part, I'm hoping, hopefully I'm, you know, being a part of keeping the ecosystem safe, um, protecting other people, protecting myself, and protecting my family. Um, and so that's that's kind of been my mantra with it. You know, keep, keep it simple. Do the do the do the do the few little things at an elite level, right? You know, wash your hands constantly. I'm wearing my mask constantly. And I think the toughest thing for me, you know, Adam is is the is the physical distance. You know, I'm you know obviously as an athletic trainer, you know, and I'm you know we always call this place the barbershop. I'm you know I love to give the guys a hug when I see them, and you know we you know, obviously people are always shaking hands and all those deals. So you know that's my area that I got to make sure that I really be mindful of, but. If you do those things, you, you should be safe all in all. Reggie, you're coming up on 20 years in the NFL. You've been with the Rams over a decade. Up until now, what has been the biggest challenge that you have faced in your job with the Rams? Wow, that's that's a great question. I tell you what, this 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 is this might be it. Um, you know, come March when this thing came down our pipeline and we had to put this thing together, I'd. You know, we've pretty much been around the clock nonstop, and I and I can't obviously take all the credit. I mean, there's so many people in this organization from the top down with, you know, Kevin and Coach and Les and Tony and, you know, them giving me, the, you know, the uh, the ability and empowerment to do what we need to do to keep this ecosystem safe. And so many great people um, across the boards in here with, you know, the football operations department and um, a, a, so many slew of people that really helped put this together. Um, but we, we've been working pretty nonstop. Um, you know, and and the tough thing about it too is, is you know, you're also trying to make mitigation and risk policies as the virus is constantly, you know, dynamically changing. So that's made it even tough. You know, just on treatment responses and different types of um, return return to activity responses have changed. So, Adam, this is up there, man. This is this is definitely up there for sure in my career. Well, Reggie, I can't imagine that you've ever dealt with anything like this. I mean, no way. There's no way. And, and, who, and who would have thought that in the summer of 2020, if I had said to you this would be the issue, we, we would have thought that you were getting ready to open your new stadium. Taylor Swift was going to debut it last week. You'd be gearing up for your first preseason game in the new stadium. And instead, here we are talking about kids and schools and mental health and washing hands and all the things that every single one of us has been dealing with. And you're right. It's amazing how everyone's views of it fall all across the spectrum. Some people do think it's a hoax. Some people are remarkably fearful of it and everybody's got their own interpretation and is allowed to feel whatever they want about it. Right. That, that's, that's, that's exactly it. And it, it is, it's, it's, you know, I think Mr. Kroenke done such an awesome job in, in his passion and really building it, you know, what I call the best stadium on the planet. And uh, it, it is, it's, it, that is, you know, you feel for him so much cause he's done so hard work and, you know, you'd love to open up this stadium and have some fans in there and stuff like that. But obviously this virus is really just like you said, it dynamically has changed a lot of our lives. And, um, you know, the great thing is, is that we'll, you know, hopefully we'll get some football rolling here and we can stay sustainable and, and, and really hopefully keep more than anything, you know, my goal is to keep everybody safe and everybody healthy and, and uh, have really good treatment for people that do have it. And hopefully we have a football season and we can still get on so far and enjoy that wonderful stadium that he built. <laughs> Well, it's amazing. You brought up Kevin Demoff, the Rams uh, president. You brought up Tony Pastores, Les Snead, Sean McVay, all these people I've known for an awful long time, uh, have nice relationships with them. You and I have never spoken up until now, but they tell me what are, that you are the rock star of all rock stars. That's what they've said about you. And I said, you know what? I got to get uh, Reggie on the podcast. Well, no, I, I tell you what, I, I think I think the word of those guys, I mean, um, 2010, those, those guys gave me a chance. Obviously, Kevin was here at the time. And and um, they've been so awesome to me. And really, more than anything, they just helped me develop and grow as an athletic trainer in my profession. And more than anything, too, just been always supportive of what we do. And so, um, and obviously, Kevin thinks the world of you in the same. So it's funny. We never talk, but we always, you know, always talk. He always talks about you, and I'm sure the same on the other side. So it's finally nice to, you know, sit down and talk with you. Well, that's awesome. I, I appreciate that, Reggie. And it's great to finally speak with you. And I hope that we can meet in person soon. That is my hope and wish for today. 
Oh, we'll do it. For sure, we'll do it. Absolutely. I'll give you a little elbow bump when I see you, huh? <laughs> <laughs> and I'll give you one back. Reggie, until then, be well, stay safe, and I hope your wife and daughters get along in the school year just fine, and we all, again, work this out as well as we can and that there's football ahead. Got it. Stay, stay safe, Adam. Make sure you wash your hands, and, uh, and all the best to you and your family. So there is the Rams Vice President of Sports Medicine and Performance, Reggie Scott. And before we sign off this week, and as we sign off on this podcast as training camps are opening across the league, I think back to one of my favorite training camp stories. When I was covering the Denver Broncos on the campus of the University of Northern Colorado in Greeley, Colorado, back in the mid-1990s. And the great part about training camp then, which is very different from the way it is today, is that I ate every one of my meals in the same cafeteria and dining room as all the players and coaches. I lived in the same dorm room every summer, used the same bathroom every summer, had the same phone number in my Greeley dorm room every summer for 15 straight years. But in this cafeteria, there was a director of dining services by the name of Hal Miller. And Hal knew that I, like the players, like to eat very healthy. And so I was always looking for all the things that were good for you and healthy for you. And he had out a dessert table one day with a sign that said giant health cookies. And I said, oh my God, what's better than that? Giant health cookies. Like, let me have it now. And I took one of them and it was ridiculously good. I mean, it was off the charts good. So I devoured this giant health cookie and went back and ate another one. And I've never tasted anything like that in my life. To this day, I still don't know that I've tasted anything like it in my life. I could still taste it in my mouth now. Soft, chewy, delicious, to the point where he devoured two giant ones. And when I finished the second one, I wandered over to Hal Miller and I said, Hal, you got to tell me, what is in those giant health cookies? And he said to me, giant health cookies? Giant Heath cookies. Somebody put an extra L in the Heath and made Heath health, forcing me to eat the two giant Heath cookies that I thought were health cookies. And I've never forgotten that story from training camp. It's something that I remember to this day. Unfortunately, those stories won't be unfolding this year because there are no reporters allowed in dining rooms. I don't know that players will be eating with each other as well. It's kind of grab and go, but this is a sign of the world that we live in. But here at the Adam Schefter Podcast, we'll be trying, but here at the Adam Schefter Podcast, we'll try to bring you these stories of training camps, some insight from training camps, some news and information from training camps as they continue to go on across the league. I want to thank my great producer, Christina Buswell, for putting this all together this week. Travis Rockhold for an assist there with the Mike Golick interview. I want to thank Mike Golick for taking time out of his busy schedule. Reggie Scott for joining this podcast as well. And you, the listener, for tuning in to another Adam Schefter podcast. Please join us again next week as we'll be back. Minus the giant health cookies. And until then, have a great week, everybody. Be well and stay safe.